I'm Ryan Ndrasov. Welcome to Let's Think Digital. In the tech world, the mantra is often to move fast and break things. But when we think about our governments, that's not really the ethos that comes to mind. And to be honest, that's probably not quite what we want either. Obviously, we want government to be innovative and to not be left behind in the digital revolution. But this comes up against the reality of the structures, incentives, and culture of most public sector organizations. Ones that are often grounded in the idea that any deviation from the status quo might endanger the public trust. And so as a result, as we've been talking about on this podcast, our efforts to push forward digital transformation and modernize the business of government seem to be stuck in the mud as of late. For the dedicated community of those in and adjacent to the public service who believe in the potential of doing things in a different way, it can feel a bit lonely at times. And as somebody who has worked in both the political system and the public service, I know how important clear political leadership is to support these efforts. The good news is that there are those in positions of power and influence here in Canada who also believe in this vision of modern government. Our guest this week is one of them and comes from perhaps an unlikely place, that chamber of sober second thought, the Canadian Senate. Senator Colin Deacon is an independent senator for Nova Scotia, appointed in June 2018. He's made digital government one of his focus areas in the Senate and is one of the founders and co-chairs of the Caucus Group on Emerging Technology, a multi-party initiative to help parliamentarians better understand how technology is impacting policy issues. He's a strong advocate for working across party lines and with entrepreneurs, researchers, and social innovators to build a more innovative digital economy in Canada. Before he was appointed a senator, he was the founder of Blue Light Analytics, a company that commercialized new technologies in the dental field. He was also the CEO for Spell Read until 2006, which worked to improve reading skills among children and adults and was cited as one of Atlantic Canada's fastest growing companies. I'm really glad that Senator Deacon was able to join us this week to talk about why digital government is a topic that he has made a priority for his time in the Senate, the work of the cross-partisan caucus group he chairs, and whether he thinks that other politicians in Parliament are paying enough attention to issues around how digital technology is impacting government and society. As always, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to click the like and subscribe buttons below if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app, be sure to follow the show and give us a five-star review. Now, here's my conversation with Senator Colin Deacon. Senator Deacon, welcome to Let's Think Digital. Looking forward to chatting with you, Ryan. Great to have you with us. Um, I want to talk a little bit about you know your background and and the work you're doing in the Senate. Um, you were appointed to represent Nova Scotia in the Senate in June of 2018, if I'm correct. Um, and I think what's really interesting is you know as a senator, you've established a number of focus areas uh, that have been priorities for you. I, I think things like competition and entrepreneurship, environment and sustainability, uh, regulatory reform and open banking. I hear you talk about a lot, but one of those areas that you've been spending a lot of time on is digital government. Um, and I'm really interested to find out how you got interested in this topic of digital government and why you made it a focus of your efforts and time as a senator. Well, very simply, um, 
an innovative economy needs an innovative government. I mean, it's all the rules of how an economy functions are set by government. And if we want to have innovation in our economy, then we have to have innovation in, in how we make rules, how we make our laws, our regulations, our, you know, every element, programs, you name it, right across uh, from the federal government through municipal government, provincial and municipal governments. So that's, that's why I feel I'm in this job. It's what I wrote about when I applied for the job. I thought there needed to be sort of a startup mentality in the Senate, if you're looking for um, representation of our society and economy in the Senate, which is what this uh, Prime Minister courageously did, not appointing partisan uh, senators. Uh, when I got my, I've only spoken to the Prime Minister once, he only called me once, and uh, it was to appoint me, and he only made one request of me, and that was to challenge the government. I'd argue that there wasn't a senator in history of this country who was given that instruction from the prime minister appointing them to the senate <laughs> it's you know be loyal to the government uh or loyal to the party so you know that's that's why i'm in the job that's that's i'm i'm here to try and help uh our government officials our our um uh, you know our parliamentarians to understand that there is a way that we can go that is much lower risk than our sort of stagnated approach to developing uh, policies. We put them in place for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, meanwhile, technologies and business models are changing month by month, week by week. Uh, so it just it's to show there's a different way and it doesn't need to be riskier. It can actually be less risky. Right. Well, and, and, and you know, you talk about bringing that kind of entrepreneurial spirit into your work as a Senate. You, you were an entrepreneur, right, before you became a senator. Yeah, I've, I've not spent a lot of time uh, in the political world. Uh, the last f uh, five and a half years have been certainly a, a, a deep dive <laughs> into that world. Uh, I don't think I was built for it. Um, but I really am enjoying learning about uh, the the par the process, and I'm feeling like we're getting you know we're helping on some of these issues. Competition uh, law reform and policy reform is finally on the agenda. We've been you know we've been advocating for that and trying to give the arguments as to why it's important, and it, it's great to see this government acting on it. Um, we we really are huge believers in open banking. That's the foundation mm -hmm. of our economy. It should be as innovative and not just stable and secure, but also innovative, delivering the best benefits to consumers and the economy overall, small business. Um, and that's now moving forward. So some of these files that we've really been pushing and, uh, and putting a lot of time into to try and say, hey, this, there is a better way. Um, it's great to see them moving. So yeah. I'm, I'm really you know, honored to be here. It's a tremendous responsibility and, and toughest job I've ever done, but I'm really honored to be here. Yeah. And, and so I'm really interested because I think that that kind of entrepreneurial mindset and perspective that you're bringing to the role, there's this kind of interesting tension in my mind that I, I, I want to kind of, you know, um, uh, extract with you a little bit. Because on the one hand, there is that, you know, at least in the tech startup world, that kind of ethos of like move fast, break things, you know, try stuff, see what works and learn from it quickly. And then you've got the Senate with with kind of that, you know, traditional mantra of, you know, being the, the chamber of sober 
second thought. And I'm wondering how those two things come together, how you can kind of bring that kind of startup mentality while at the same time, in, in your case now, operating in what is, you know, a deliberative body. You know, how do we find that right balance between encouraging innovation while also making sure we can safeguard the public interest? Uh, so the only major innovation that's ever occurred in the Senate was introduced by this prime minister in terms of the appointments process mm -hmm. um, and not appointing purely partisan members. Um, the Senate is not a very innovative or organization, but it's got a lot of creative folks in it now that are not traditionally from the political world. And they're, they've, got a, they've got a deep level of experience in a lot of different sectors. Um, a lot of different walks of life. The diversity of the Senate now, 55% women, uh, over 35% uh, uh, BIPOC, uh, black, indigenous, people of color. Um, it's, it, you know, 80, over 80% 80 independent senators that vote, uh, not because of how they're told. They may be, some may be encouraged by the government to vote a certain way, but uh, there's only a very small number that are, are actually uh, directed on how to vote. And uh, so it's it's not a very innovative institution, but that is a major change that's occurred. Mm -hmm. um, so the minds in the Senate, the people making the decisions, I think have got a far more um, uh, modern appreciation of the challenges that we face and the need for change in a lot of different areas. Uh, I tend to focus on, on innovation, uh, but it's the same in a lot of sectors where we're not seeing change. And stagnation in how we do things means we're not iterating, we're not getting better, we're not learning from our experience and improving. And that, I think, is a general concern of my colleagues across mm. every sector. So, you know, sober second thought is not just about, hmm, is it a you know, good idea to make that change? It's, it's about what is needed to help us keep getting better in all these areas where we're seeing legislation or, or pu public policy having an influence. And so that from my standpoint, um, you know, this change that has been made uh, has really opened up a lot of opportunity for the Senate to be a driver of careful, thoughtful innovation mm -hmm. across our, our government. Yeah, and, it, and it's an interesting point that as you have a Senate that it looks like the country and is more representative of the country in a lot of ways, it's tapped into where some of those challenges may be and, and makes it a lot more visible. Well said. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious on, you know, on this, as we've said, you know, one of your priority areas has been this notion of digital government, of how do we kind of modernize government operations for the digital era. Um, and last year, you put forward a motion in the Senate that called on the government of Canada to modernize its digital service delivery. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that motion and what your intent behind it was. My intent was to start to raise the concern that we can't afford government in this country. Uh, the way we're delivering government is not affordable. And it's not delivering the analog delivery of government services is not serving Canadians where they're at. When we all sit there accessing whatever we want, when we want, uh, asymmetrically from the hours of a business, um, and in the form that is intuitive, that we, cannot, we don't need to read the two pages of instructions for a one-page form um, and then you know, fill it in by hand uh, and put it in an envelope and go buy a stamp and send it in. 
or fax it um, with a check. <laughs> like, we don't have to do any of that yep. in our lives. So government is not meeting citizens where they're at. That's one thing. Uh, so it's government isn't meeting citizens where they're at. How we're doing it is way too expensive and not scalable. And if we, we need to make a change to a program, um, it, it, it takes a long time to implement through an analog system because there's a lot of training and forms and <laughs> whatever else. You, in a digital system, version 1.27 can be up tomorrow and 2.8 mm -hmm. tomorrow, the day after that. I mean, <laughs> yep. you know, so there's no question that we can scale improvements, which is a risk-reducing factor. Yep. Um, all of these are risk-reducing, these changes. Um, huge potential to serve Canadians better, uh, serve them more cost-efficiently. But when you start to see, uh, in my mind, the, 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 the government processes just not keeping up in any way, you say, how else are we going to do this? We can't afford to do it by retraining. Mm -hmm. um, everybody, they, you know, there's a there's a culture that that is just not keeping up, and so we just thought let's let's at least see what we can what what conversations come forward in the Senate. I've had uh, I think four colleagues speak to the motion now, all from different perspectives. Uh, it's wonderful to see, um, and we also had the PBO pick up on it, and the Parliamentary Budget Officer uh, did a study. And one of the, th the key findings of that study uh, that was released in the fall was that when government is, pr is, is designing a digital program, there's no key performance indicators identified up front. You know, yep. how is this going to serve Canadians better? How is this going to be reducing the cost? How is this going to allow us to, to deliver a, a service in a more agile manner? Um, and I think... A lot of that is because of the huge fear over what happened a few years ago with Phoenix. You know, that's a whole other conversation that I wouldn't yep. you know, happy to chat to a little bit. Yeah. But it's, you know, there's, it's an, a great, it, unfortunately, it's just caused this emotional barrier. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's a few really interesting threads on this that I'd, I'd love to pick up on. Um, maybe actually starting at the citizen side of this. So, you know, you, you made the comment that there's a sense that government's not keeping up with expectations and what people have kind of come to expect in terms of, of modern service delivery. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, when you're back home in Nova Scotia talking to people that you represent, do you have a sense of, of kind of, of what their biggest frustrations are when they are dealing with government today? Is, is there anything that kind of on, on kind of a, you know, a human level that you hear time and time again from people that's really, you know, kind of um, challenging for them as, and in terms of what their expectations of what government service delivery should look like in 2024? I tell you about one in just my own life, just the, mm -hmm. um, I turned 64 I got, I think, a 12-page, a two-sided letter from ESDC about applying for Canada Pension Plan and Old Age Security that I can now go and fill out by hand. All of the information in there, they already have. Yep. It's a different department. But Government of Canada has all that information. Yep. Why, am I, why did I not get a link to say, do you give me permission to sh shift this over? And here's the three choices you need to make. Yep. Like... To me, that's just outrageous. Yeah. And I, mean, I understand that it's e not easy to make that change, but it's, a, it, it, it's, it's terribly worrisome. Yeah. So cybersecurity risks are in the lives of people every day. 
Fraud risks are in the lives of people every day. Increased costs, slow service, service that is designed for needs other than than what they are experiencing. Uh, Those are the sorts of things I hear a lot. Um, I hear a lot from small business in terms of regulatory stagnation. You know, regulation, the, you know, when you have technologies and, and business realities changing on a month-to-month basis and regulations are stagnant, that is no longer protecting citizens or our environment. That's, that, that is a, a, a real problem in the economy. And I don't blame the regulators. They don't have the ability with that old model to keep up. Yep. They just don't. There's no capacity and there's not going to be enough people. We've got to change how we regulate in order to keep up with the reality of the world. So each of those elements says the, the model has to change at all levels of government. I'm not pointing a single finger mm-hmm. <laughs> just at the federal government. This is federal, provincial, municipal. Yep. And, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on why, you know, you think we aren't keeping up because this has been a little bit of a, a theme on the podcast here the last number of episodes is kind of this pervasive sense that we're a little stuck in the mud here in Canada right now, you know, when it comes to, to modernization writ large, including digital modernization. And, you know, I just, I think some of the things that you've been talking about, you know, you're talking about applying for, for pension and old age security. There's been discussion around making tax uh, filing automatic where people you know essentially just kind of say yes to tax filing which is a big change but this isn't unprecedented other countries in the world have been doing this for years i was talking to somebody from denmark a few weeks ago they've had automated tax filing for 30 years you know so it's not impossible to do this but i do get this sense that we are a little bit behind here in canada and and getting further behind i think on your website you know you flag the une government rankings where we have dropped down to 32nd place from you know being in the top 10 so i'm you know i'm curious i have my own theories about it but i'm curious you know your vantage point what you think is is leading to us kind of being held back and not being able to modernize our institutions themselves None of this relates to technology, to be honest. Um, It all relates to leadership. Um, And we don't have a requirement, for example, uh, that our senior uh, public service leaders must have a certain level of certification and understanding, certification related to their understanding of digital technologies. Mm -hmm. We are not digital first in anything that we do. We were actually in the middle of the pandemic, as the pandemic started, with CERB, right? Mm-hmm. That, that was a digital first delivery. Thank the Lord yep. that the CRA had the capacity, ESDC didn't, CRA had the capacity to yep. deliver that service. And I, my, I commend those involved with the incredible job they did of moving public servants out of their offices into their homes to operate safely. And to and I, I wrote an op-ed on this, and 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 also to get CERB up and running in three weeks, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. We can do it, but there's no uh, that was that was just because of the the pandemic. That should be what we are. We should have that attitude with everything we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> so well, that's it's, it. All comes down to leadership, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It's just not been a priority. It certainly is not something Canadians will ever. I don't. I don't see it being a political priority in an election, a ballot box issue. Uh, I wish it was, 
but I don't see that ever happening. It has to be something where a government says the only way we can meet citizens where they are is we, if we change how we deliver services. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and I think we've seen in other countries, uh, crisis has been kind of the engine of growth on some of this, right, in terms of sparking governments into thinking about how they do service delivery, how they how they kind of digitize their operations in a different kind of way. And as you said, there were some very bright lights during during the COVID pandemic where, you know, the old rule book got thrown out. Things had to happen quickly. Um, I worry now we have a little bit of backsliding happening on that. And, and, and I think your, your notion, though, around kind of the competencies around this, I mean, that's near and dear to my heart. We do a lot of work on education with senior executives in government. And I often say, you know, in today's world, every policy issue is a digital issue. There's almost oh, nothing absolutely. that government does that isn't touched by technology in some way. Um, Absolutely. And it's hard to imagine how you can be an effective leader if you don't at least have a basic understanding of how the digital world works. If it's if you're not prior to prioritizing it in your decision making, it ain't going to happen as a leader. Yep. And that to me is is probably one of the biggest concerns that I have is that in order to get promoted in the public service, you should have to have a skill set and a track record that proves that this is a priority and that you understand how to do the how to manage the digitization of your department in an effective manner and how to collaborate with other departments in a citizen-centric approach. I mean, we've got our first minister of citizen services. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Never happened before. Uh, It's a great way of saying it because it is about citizen services. Um, You know, I look at, at, uh, well, you you mentioned Denmark, phenomenally digitized. Uh, Estonia, everybody's speaks to uh to me ukraine yeah you know, fighting a war <laughs> while they were fighting a war in eastern ukraine and then the overall invasion they have delivered uh delivered services to their to their population on their phones anywhere they are in the world it's phenomenal yeah the dia app is is you know and, and i encourage anybody who gets a chance to uh to to listen to podcasts or a bunch of them on my, my on my website but uh, Slava Banik, who is involved in that, uh, managing that, that work, speaks about the fact that basically they've got the same number of developers uh, as they do policy people to change the, the regulations and the, and the policies around uh, all different types of services across government to make them more easily digitized. But they had the same problems that we have when mm-hmm. they started. The state registers, the databases, nothing interacted with each other. Everything was done differently. Um, citizens had documents and services and, and things that were all complex and hard to follow and not clear. There was Everybody had uh, disparate authorities that they didn't need to work together uh, to get things done. They could just go and do something on their own. Yeah. And it's that lack of coordinated leadership that leads to problems like, for example, Phoenix. You know, no CEO would have ever initiated a digitization project that had 80,000 variables all to be launched on one day, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. Would never have happened. Yep. So we talk about risk around these projects. The risk is managed by leadership. And, you know, you bring up Phoenix. I mean, do you think the public service has learned the lessons of Phoenix? Or are we at risk of having, you know, Phoenix 2.0 coming up in the next couple of years? If we'd learned the lessons of Phoenix firmly, it wouldn't be a ghost sitting on everybody's shoulder right now. Right. And I think it is. Yep. Yep. I don't disagree with you on that at all. Um, 
I'm glad you brought up Ukraine. I think it's a really interesting example internationally right now. In the last couple of years, they've done some some impressive work there, and and we'll be sure to put a link in the in the notes for today's shows for folks who want to find out some more about what's been happening there. Um, I wanted to go back to um, the parliamentary budget officer report that they came out with this fall in in response to your motion, because you know as you said, one of the things that it noted was this kind of lack of KPIs from departments to actually measure success. I mean, I thought it was it was it was quite stunning coming out of that report. This notion that most departments, you know, couldn't answer the question of of in some cases how much money they were spending on digital transformation, let alone what kind of benefits or savings were potentially coming out of there. And this seems to be a pervasive issue, you know, in digital for as long as I can remember. Of how do you actually quantify results? And I'm just, you know, I'm wondering, do you think there is a role for? Um, the Senate, the House of Commons, for elected officials to to be kind of setting some direction around this to ensure that we actually are measuring KPIs around this? Or do you think that might be counterproductive to kind of have that top-down mandate around it? I think it's got to happen in the PCO. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I think it needs to happen. If it doesn't, like the last clerk, who was a clerk twice, when she retired, said it's time for government to start to digitize. Well, she had two kicks at the can. I, I found, you know, great to hear that, but I found it frustrating because mm-hmm. that the clerk and the central, the, <laughs> the, the, the department of government, <laughs> of the whole of government, is not thinking about this and prioritizing it, then you know what that means to the decision-making right across government. It means it's not a priority. Don't even bring forward proposals. So, uh, it, it, you know, it just, for me, it just keeps coming down to leadership and experience and confidence uh, around how to move forward. We've got to create some successes. And I, uh, you know, that's one or two early successes to say this is how it's done. We've got to change how we procure. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got to stop defining the solution we want to buy and start defining the problem we want to solve and get innovators at the table in a, XPRIZE-like process that keeps iterating and improving and selecting the most qualified uh, groups to deliver the the most appropriate uh, product. Um, We just have to change how we're doing things because what we're doing is not working. And if we're constantly going to multinationals to deliver the solution we want to buy, we're going to keep getting very expensive, products that are not actually designed to meet our needs yeah we you yeah know, we have we have a system in the, in the senate for for uh managing our in you know, our erp system not intuitive in any way shape or form mm-hmm. it's hard for people to use um i don't know that it has actually saved any time it's great for documenting what everything that's going on but has it saved any personnel time was that a consideration when it was chosen and implemented you know, th- th- these are things that we just have to change how we look at it. And I'm not, I'm not blaming folks. I'm saying we've got to give those who want to make these decisions um, th- more of more um, authority to move ahead. Because there's, I think, a whole lot of folks that are scared by it, and uh, we shouldn't be asking them to do it if they're scared by it. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be the ones being promoted into these roles. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought up procurement because this is something we've talked about on the podcast a lot. It is, I think, a perennial challenge around, you know, having a, a, a 
procurement system that frankly was designed to, you know, buy large equipment and build bridges, not to develop software, which as you rightly point out is a much more iterative process. And our, our rules and regulations and frankly kind of our, our risk tolerance around it um, hasn't caught up to that, you know, and we and we kind of try to take what we view as being safe approaches to procurement, but I think as you've rightly pointed out, actually makes it more risky in the end. We manage risk in a manner that creates it. Yep. In this in this area. And uh, so I look at it and say, uh, how do we how do we create an economic opportunity out of government services? And it's a massive economic opportunity. If we could create a GovTech sector that was one of the best in the world, we start selling our solutions that we created. Our innovators have been empowered. We've crowdsourced them to get the very best ones to solve all these individual problems. And then they, they can take those businesses and start selling those services elsewhere. They can start pivoting into, into new benefits. And, and, and the power of innovators needs to be harnessed to solve our biggest problems in this country. We should not be trying to to force um, those who live in Ottawa in a, in a relatively uh, comfortable life relative to many Canadians, not experiencing many of the same challenges that other Canadians are experiencing, um, to be coming up with every solution to every problem. Mm-hmm. We should crowdsource it out in the country with innovators who have proven that they can build stuff and really understand a problem first really understand the problem, understand the constraints, and build innovative stuff that that meets those needs. And we have it every day, and they do it fast. That's the other thing, is that when they're, when they're not constrained by a whole lot of arbitrary uh, constraints that have been created in Ottawa by people who are not experts in innovating, um, let's just solve their problems for them. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, and, and, and I think harnessing that that innovative potential that is out there is a real challenge. I mean, I've I've seen that in you know in my career, both when I was in government and, and being outside of government, you know, talking to folks in the startup community and innovation community who would, on the one hand, be very open to trying to help solve public problems, but just can't figure out how they would even be able to interact with government in a reasonable way to be able to do that. And so harnessing some of that potential, um, I think, is a really interesting well, and, and, and difficult challenge. I built two businesses. I never even tried to sell one thing in Canada. Yep. And it, not even, it, it just was not going to happen. I, I knew it. It was going to be too difficult, uh, too kind, time consuming. And we see it. I still hear complaints from different folks who are, you know, a year and a half in, five years in to a procurement process. Mm-hmm. with the federal government, with digital solutions, and still waiting for approvals. World yeah. leaders making strides elsewhere in the world and just sitting there going, this is crazy. Yeah. You know, and, and that's because people are scared of the risks that they don't know how to manage. And so what do they do? Slow it down, get more and more approvals you know, from I, other people that I really aren't experts <laughs> in the space. And that, that, you know, they're not comfortable with it with the issue if they were we'd be moving faster yeah yeah um this has been really fascinating i wanted to you know as we kind of of move to wrap up the conversation talk a little bit about leadership because it's a theme that you've brought up a lot over our conversation and i think rightfully have pointed out that we need leadership to be able to move forward on on all these issues that we've we've been raising um you know i was i was looking at a speech that you gave in the fall i think it was on september 28th of this past year uh, where you were talking about the motion that you had put forward in the senate around digital government and one of the things you said was that you had 
put the motion forward because you wanted to build up a sense of urgency to the government so that the ministers and public servants could make these changes. And importantly, what stood out for me was that so they could benefit from increased political support. And and what I wanted to ask you was, you know, how aware are our political leaders right now of these issues we've been talking about, digital government and digital modernization? You know, when you look at your colleagues in the Senate and in the House Commons, I mean, does this kind of unsexy business of modernizing the public service actually kind of break through the noise of the political crisis of the day? Or is it far and few between where people are actually talking about this uh, in the halls of Parliament? Uh, the answer to your question is no, it doesn't break yeah. through. Um, I, th- I think people think it's important, uh, but we do not have a digital first mentality. And until we have a digital first mentality within the public service, that's the best thing this government could do right now is instill that in the public service. You will not get promoted unless you have a digital first mentality and track record. That's it, to me, that would mm-hmm. be an important statement. Um, you, you know, we've got to create that capacity to execute, that capacity to engage with innovators outside of government in an effective and cost-efficient way. The ability to choose projects um, that are the most appropriate ones to start building momentum and building traction and building engagement. You know, I had a so back to your uh, move fast and break things where you started. Um, I had one of my directors in one of one of my companies said, if you weren't embarrassed by version one of your software, you waited too long Um, because you've got to get that customer experience, that customer feedback Mm -hmm. uh, in order to know where to go with it and how to make it better. That ability to iterate you, we can iterate in government. You can have early adopters and a group of early adopters that are there because they want, they want to be early adopters. We have that across the private sector all over the place. And 5% of the population are high-risk early adopters. They want to be the first to buy just about anything or use just about anything. Um, that there, There's a group that want to do that in our economy. Let's find them. They're in every community. Um, and, let's, and let's use that group to help when we get started to help us get better. And, and know that the first version is not going to be the best version. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the Wright brothers didn't build the Concorde. Um, so, you, you know, it takes time. So for me, that's, that's where I'm entirely focused. It's a, it's a, we've got to change the mindset. We've got to have a digital first mindset and the public servants have to help the parliamentarians to make the right decisions on this, on this file and see the benefits in terms of cost of government reducing, improved citizen services, mm-hmm. you know, the, the increased agility to make programs more efficient and effective. So you get, you know, they, they get the benefit politically from doing this, but they're never, it's never going to be a doorstep issue. Well, maybe someday, I don't know, but I don't see it as being a doorstep issue. In the, yeah, in the, in the near future anyways. And, and it doesn't surprise me, you know, for you to say that this is not, you know, high on the radar of a lot of your colleagues. What I was interested in, and I, and I did want to make sure I asked you about this, was I, I think one of the interesting initiatives that you've taken to try elevate some of these discussions within the halls of parliament has been the creation of a new caucus group on emerging technology. Um, and, you know, I think what's particularly 
particularly interesting too is that it's been a cross-partisan group, right? It's this is not one particular political party. I think there's co-chairs from each of the major political parties, and then including yourself from the Senate. I'd be curious for you to maybe share with our listeners a little bit about how this this new caucus group came together and what the goals are for it, and, and what you're hoping it'll be able to accomplish. Well, it's it's thanks to Michelle Rempel Garner. Uh, it was her idea. She phoned me, and I said, "I'm in. How do I help?" Um, that took, I think the first, uh, 30 seconds of the conversation. Um, it, it, it's, it's really important. Um, our first meeting, we had six people. Um, the last most recent meeting we've had 30, I think mm-hmm. that were there, 30 parliamentarians. So it's, it's, it's growing. It's very, we're, it, Michelle is, her office is really doing it off the side of their desk. She's carried the weight of this. She's very, very passionate, very capable on this file. Um, and as she's brought it, she keeps bringing in parliamentarians. I've not been as effective in, in getting the engagement of my colleagues in the Senate yet. Um, but it, it's something that in, in my mind, it, it shouldn't be, we should be able to get access to translation services. We should be able to get some clerk support. So it's not being literally done off the side of our desk, but that, that takes forever to get that in parliament. So it's a great initiative. Um, it's, it's, um, you know, we've got to keep putting, putting our shoulder to the wheel to keep building support and, and building interest. But the, you know, if cybersecurity risks, uh, uh, that we're seeing at an increasing rate, um, undetected for a year, um, you know, if we're not starting to really get concerned about the core, our core ability to deliver citizen services, we're not considering the risks appropriately. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I, you know, for me, I'm coming across huge increases in fraud that are, that are coming my way, hearing, hearing about these terrible stories that the least empowered Canadians are suffering and they don't have the ability to fight back. Um, those who are most empowered are made whole quite often. Um, you know, there's just problems right across the board because we are not keeping up. We've got too many systems that are based on software core, cores that are older than me. And that's, you know, <laughs> I'm in my mid sixties. <laughs> we, yeah, the world is changing so too fast. We're not keeping up. Yep. We hope to engage more parliamentarians, but we also really need to look to the public service. Yep. It's their time to step up. We've got a great history of public service in this country, but it is not stepping up on this issue. Yep. And it has to. Yeah. It, it, well, I think it's great that these issues are being elevated and being discussed more amongst your colleagues. And I think you're right. It's going to take political leadership and the public service coming together to really be able to drive progress. Um, I, I want to ask you one last question as we wrap up. And, and that's really, you know, what keeps you going and motivated on this? Um, and, you know, if you kind of look into the future, you know, if you want to take a look five, 10 years down the road, you know, what's your hope for where we're able to go in terms of of kind of Canada's journey on modernizing and being able to meet the challenge of the digital era? Uh, Both my parents were overseas. Uh, There's five members of each family uh, that were overseas in the Second World War. Um, What we got done, you know, the the designer of the the, uh, Hawker Hurricane, you know, one of the key fighters in in the Battle of Britain, um, fighter planes designed by a Canadian woman, uh, built in Thunder Bay, uh, in a factory that didn't, didn't basically didn't exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. And over five years, uh, one, 
helped to win the the uh, the World War II. Um, we can do things. We've done things like help create the United Nations. We've done things like create help to create the G20. We've done things like lead the acid uh, acid rain reduction with the United States in this country. We've founders of of the COP process through Rio. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been leaders on major global initiatives. Canada's got a place in the world, a trusted place in the world. I dream of the day when Canada is the country that the world looks to for the safest, most secure digital services that you can buy, that your data is protected, your, your, your access to services is protected, and the world looks to us as the leader because we are increasingly digitizing. That's not changing. But if we don't aim for the top of that mountain, we're never going to get there. And that means that there's got to be a lot of political leadership. There has to be a lot of uh, public service capacity. And there's got to be a, 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 an approach that allows us to manage risk and by embracing it <laughs> as a, an essential part of the process of innovating, not by thinking it's a horror story. You know, right now, people are terrified of risk. We're not going to get anywhere as a country. I'm worried about our future. I'm worried about my grandchildren's prosperity. If we keep having a public service and an approach to to government services that are terrified of risk. Yeah, yeah. it's. I listen. I think it's an inspiring vision. Uh, I think it's a great notion to to end off on, and it's one that I share with you. And I I sincerely hope you know conversations like this kind of keep helping to move this forward and getting people to think about you know how we can achieve that Canadian level of of ambition and leadership on these topics. And and speaking of leadership, Senator, thank you for your leadership on this. Thank you for raising these issues in the Senate, in the Houses of Parliament. Uh, I think that's an incredibly important to have your voice as, as part of this. And so thank you for everything you've been doing to bring visibility uh, to these really important topics. Thank you, Ryan, for all you do in that regard, and, and glad to be able to chat with you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. And that's the show for this week. My big thanks to Senator Deacon for joining us on today's podcast. If you haven't been following his advocacy on digital modernization in government, be sure to check out the links in the show notes to learn more about the work that the Senator has been doing on modernizing government and getting Canada back on track in the digital economy. As always, tell us what you think about this episode. If you're watching on YouTube, share your thoughts with us in the comments below email us at podcast at thinkdigital.ca or use the hashtag let's think digital on social media and while you're at it make sure to like and subscribe and if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast app and you like this episode be sure to give us a five-star review afterwards and remember to go to letsthinkdigital.ca to sign up for our newsletter and to catch up on past episodes of the podcast today's episode of let's think digital was produced by myself Wayne Chu and Aislinn Bournet. Thanks so much for listening and let's keep thinking digital.